0: I want to talk about my favorite sutta. And I don't know if I've talked about it before, but if I have, well, it's my favorite sutta. So we could hear it all the time. But I like suttas about um, devas because um, devas to me are beings that everything 's perfect and nothing 's wrong everything 's great they 're supposedly in realms where it 's all pleasurable and seem very happy and joy, not like our world, so the fact that a deva would come to the Buddha to ask any kind of practice question i mean I think that's that 's significant to me because it somehow helps me realize that even in these worlds that we think everything's going to be perfect, we still have this need to practice. There's something about practice that's not trying to fix us or get us out of our misery. There's something else that's being pointed to with practice. And so this sutta that I want to talk about, and I'm hoping I'm talking about it so that I can inspire you to use it over the course of this year with uh, these paramis." And I thought there's no better way to inspire, uh, to use use a sutta than to talk about it, because mostly we don't ever use them. We don't have any connection to them, but I have found that I've read a lot of suttas and uh, I really enjoy them. So. there is this uh place where the Buddha would do his uh what are called range retreats where they basically they would stay for three months in uh um this wealthy guy's uh created a monastery for them, uh, Buddha and his uh students. Um it's called Anandapendika's, uh uh a uh monastery, and there's a grove there called Jetta's Grove, and a lot of the Dhamma talks that Buddha gave, he gave here in this Jetta's Grove, and, you know, one night the Buddha is sitting in this grove, midnight, late, I mean, late night, so it's not like here, it does not have any lights out there. It's pitch black I would not sit out in that kind of a space I would be more afraid of animals and things but the Buddha was just sitting in this pitch black grove practicing and a deva came and they the commentaries say this deva was a little arrogant because it's supposed to be that if you're a spirit, nobody can see you unless you want them to. And so the brighter you shine, the more you're showing off who you are kind of energy. So this uh, deva comes to the Buddha and her radiance radiates and lights up the entire Jedha's Grove, that's how I got everything going for me. She comes to have a practice meeting with the Buddha. When she comes, she asks him this question that's kind of flippant in the way she asks him. Again, it's I think they say this is she just She's a lot like the way I came into practice. I don't know about you guys, but when I first came in, I thought this was going to be some easy thing. I never thought I'd be practicing for 30 years, I assure you. I thought it was just going to be something I'd learn how to do and then move on. And so I can see myself in this deva going to the Buddha and asking some basic question. And she asked him, how did he cross the floods? just just tell me how you cross the floods and I'll go do it and the floods in this case is referring to this, this energy that comes in life you, we know it you, you can be swept up in some reactivity without any capacity to stop it or, or, or uh, interrupt it it just shoop, sweeps us away We can get caught in a view and we can't see anything else except for that view. It's so easy for our minds and our lives to just get swept up, swept away by life. We can be overwhelmed by very common things, but death is a very common thing that will happen to all of us. And yet let someone in our family die. We get caught up in it so overwhelming that almost it's like it shouldn't be like this, but it's very common, very much should be like this, but we get caught up in the, the, the energies of life and have all this difficulty. And even for devas, they can get caught up in the pleasure. They can get caught up in the greed of wanting more and more and more and more, and they have the same difficulties Um, when they feel caught up, swept away, Buddha did too. And so she asked him, how did you cross the floods? How did you do that? And I think the arrogance that she has is this idea that he could actually tell her in one little practice meeting. You know, if you've ever gone to a teacher in a practice meeting, they're only like 15 minutes. So it's not like she's gonna be sitting with the Buddha all night. So she's assuming he can just tell her something and it'll change her capacity to cross the floods. So the Buddha gave her equally a flippant response and he said I crossed the floods by not pushing forward not staying in place and I think the next question she asked him she gets there's a deeper wanting to know because the next time she asked him she asked him, but how? But how did you cross the floods without pushing forward and without staying in place? And that question, how, it seems to me, it points to when we realize something is a lot more difficult than we thought, and we need to know how to do it. How do I do that? And that's when I think the Buddha kind of realizes that she understands. And I got the sense that even when I first read it the very first time, it's the way I would have asked him, well, how did you do it? And then I kind of got, it's, it's a little bit more involved than that. And so he said that he crossed the floods by not pushing forward because when he pushed forward, he got entangled and not staying in place because when he stayed in place, he sank. And so he crossed through the waters of life without pushing forward and without staying in place. And I think the deva, it's a very short uh, sutta as far as suttas go, but the deva then understands it's, it's, it's a short answer, but it's enough. I think even you might feel it's enough. I understand what he's talking about. There is something about pushing through life that we get all entangled and messed up and things get complicated and it just, it's, it just gets worse and worse and more stressful. And there is something about this doing nothing, just staying in place. It's not helpful either. Uh, just living in this kind of denial world, that isn't working either. So somehow she gets this understanding that there's a way to move through the world that doesn't involve pushing and it doesn't mean you have to stay in place. There's something else. But I think she also understood that she was gonna have to figure that out. That she has to figure out in any given moment, am I pushing? Am I staying in place? Which one is happening here? This sutta, this learning when pushing and when staying in place, to me, this is a fundamental thing you have to learn with the paramis. Because the paramis themselves are just a random list of words. And if we just use them as words, we can get trapped in thinking, you know, generosity is about how much dana do I give or how much do I give away and am I stingy or not? And that's it. And we miss the whole of dana because the dana generosity is actually pointing to having a reciprocity with the rest of the world, having a give and take, a interweaving kind of uh, interconnectedness with all of the world, with everything. So with uh, nature, with your coworkers, your people that live down the street from you, your neighbors, people you don't like, people you don't even know, people you think you like, but, you know, they may not like you so much, you know, it's like, The the idea is that dana, generosity, is a much fuller connection with the world than just whether you give money. In a way, this insight tradition, because we use that word dana to connect us to um, uh, the giving for teachers and the giving for sangha, to support the sangha, There is a way that Dhana becomes, um, diminished in some way. But hopefully, when we practice it as a paramese, we begin to understand it is a far fuller, um, connectedness with life. Everything on these paramese are a connectedness with life. So, this sutta, is a great kind of pointing towards everything that we're gonna do, it is really about how we practice ourselves in a given moment. What do we see? Are we willing to look for and begin to understand all of these various qualities? Um, the, the, the paramis are, for those of you that weren't here last week, they're commonly referred to as the ten perfections. Tim probably uh, talked about that. Um, they don't really have a, a, a definition. You can, there's, there's some uh, basic words you could give around them, but really the paramis and what they are come alive in any given moment when you begin to feel into or understand their presence. I used to think that the paramis were, you know, some kind of second class. I mean, I was such a striver. I thought jhana concentration was the only really liberating thing. Everything else was the, you know, second place for everybody that couldn't get to jhana. Until I I couldn't get to jhana, and then I reassessed whether or not it was necessary. But I had this belief that the whole of practice was about deep concentration. And unless I could get my mind into a concentrated state, everything else was secondary. Secondary. And that understanding, I held that understanding for many, many years. So let me just back up a little bit. For the first 10 years of my practice, I just made up meditation. I didn't have any meditation instructions. I didn't know anything about it. I I did what I called meditation, which was really, to me, I would just find my happy place and sit still. And if I couldn't find it, then... I felt like that was, you know, God telling me it's not a good day to meditate, so I wouldn't meditate. But most of the rest of the time it was finding some still place and, and being quiet, reading Dhamma. And I I think some of you may know I used a Trumper Rinpoche's book, uh, Training the Mind, or Mind Training, Cultivating Loving Kindness. And it's, the Tibetan Lojong practice. And in that practice, they have 59 little statements. They call them slogans. And then there's a commentary. So I would read the statement, the commentary, and then try to practice that all day. And I did it for 59 days. And then on day 60, I'd start at number one again, do it all over again. And I just kept doing it two months, two months, two months, two months, two months, for 10 years That's what I did. That was my practice sitting quietly and seeing if I could understand what Trumpet was pointing to a lot of it didn't make any sense but I just kept trying to fill into what what was he saying and then I came to Seattle insight 2001 did a beginner's class. I'm like, oh now I see what we're supposed to be doing and so started practicing more diligently and connection with the instructions and the Satipatthana. And then I start having these really, really great sits of bliss and and now I'm trying to strive to get that. And then I went through this whole period of anxiety and oh my God, just over and over and over, up and down, 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 and all of that practice, I thought that those first 10 years were basically throwaway. You know, those were the throwaway years because I didn't really get to practice. I didn't really start practicing until I came to Seattle Insight and I did that beginner's class with Rodney. And I just assumed everything before that didn't mean anything because I, I didn't have any structure. I didn't have any real way to practice. I didn't know what I was doing. I was making it up. And then I went to this uh, three-month, and I was um, practicing, and I remember going into my teacher. And I said something like, I wonder what my practice would be like if I had started getting serious 10 years earlier. Meaning that those, if, if, if I had not blown those first 10 years. She said, what are you talking about, Tori? Those years weren't blown. Those were important. I'm like, uh, I didn't even know what I was doing. So they can't be that important. She said, that is the nature of the paramis i would never thought about the paramis like this. But she said the paramis are words and ideas that are so simple for any human being to grasp that you'd be willing to consider and practice and figure out, is this present? Is truthfulness present? Is patience present? you would be willing to practice. And she was saying that by reading Trumpa's commentary, by trying to figure out how to understand what he was saying, I was in effect practicing these 10 paramis and that those practices I did, all of that inquiry, all that questioning, all that trying to understand that willingness to sit and be with the experience, all of that is what uh, set my mind in motion to be able to have deep practice. I totally 100% believe that. That what I was basically doing for those 10 years was trying to learn how to move through life without pushing forward and without staying in place how do I do this when I don't really understand and it's very different than the way I was living I was a trial lawyer so life was all about striving and the better you strive the more you win the better you are and then here I am in this practice that seemed to be the opposite of that and trying to figure out how that is what that is supposed to be I think this all of this is pointing to something about the paramis, something about the way the Dhamma is. Asan Suchito gave a Dhamma talk one time and said that the Dhamma, it it doesn't, um, I'm sorry, Asan Sumedo, it doesn't have a structure. It doesn't, Dhamma is just, information. It's just knowledge. It's just understanding. It's all it is. And without a structure, it's just out there in the wind. You could just completely walk past it. But when you put that dhamma in a structure, then all of a sudden it begins to have a life of its own. So what we're doing, what we do each year, is we take a structure to put the dhamma in to have a, a way to frame our attention. And these paramis that we're going to be working with over the course of a year are the structure that fundamentally we need in order to awaken. Meaning that if I understood what my teacher was pointing to, I was a trial lawyer I had a very aggressive mind, very aggressive, very self-centered, conceited. I'm the greatest. I mean, most of that came from law school. They pump you into believing you're the greatest. That's why all lawyers, we all think we're the greatest. We can't marry each other because there's too many great people in the house. But that energy, this kind of forced energy that we have, as practitioners this is what i would have tried to meditate with i would have tried to meditate with a mind that was arrogant all about me wait a minute that is the way i was meditating but i this whole idea that i would take this striving mind and try to meditate this is what this is why I went through so much difficulty. But those 10 years of cultivating the paramis, those 10 years of softening into understanding, learning how to maneuver through life without pushing and without this kind of staying in place, those 10 years is why I did not get stuck in all that striving it's why I was able to begin to see that the striving was not getting me anywhere and it was painful and how do I adjust And there's just been all of this adjusting and how do I do this learning how to be uh, patient and still I'm very uh, I'm an extrovert so I'm always loud and big. It's weird coming at the end of a retreat. I teach with teaching teams, we're all introverts. And a lot of the yogis are all introverts. So at the end of the retreat, people are like, your heart is open. And so, you know, you're gonna want quiet and stillness and have everything kind of, you know, don't get too caught in things because it'll be too much. I'm like, I finally on my last retreat said, okay, I have to speak up on behalf of all the extroverts. When our hearts are open, we are loud. We are big. We are expressive. And we have to tone that, bring it in a little bit. It's not this kind of quiet world. It's the opposite. It's big and expressive. And I have to rein it in, rein it in, rein it in all the time. Because the more my heart gets open, the bigger it gets. But that big heart openness, that learning to feel into an open heart without trying to pigeonhole myself into what I think I'm supposed to be like, that understanding is what Practice is all about finding our way, each of us individually, finding our way to be able to be in a moment without somehow having to force that moment to be different than what it is or somehow, you know, just uh, kind of uh, drifting off fading away not even I'm not even going to deal with it that we can actually engage with the moment however it is and not have to shove and make it what we want that is a learned capacity that is not something that we e- easily know it is learned through this kind of ebbing and flowing um the thing I wanted to say about Suchito is he said at one point that the Buddha never went, the Buddha did not go on his meditation practice to be calm. He was not striving to meditate so that he could be calm and blissful. He already knew how to be calm and blissful. He could, he, at one point in his practice, he was better than the teachers that were teaching him to get into jhana states. He was deep concentration, no problem. But that was not his point. What he wanted to understand was suffering. And so he didn't stay just doing, you know, deep concentration. He moved on beyond that. And so, again, what all this is pointing to, what I'm pointing to, is that over the course of this year, our individual practice responsibility is not to memorize the paramis, but to feel into them, to begin to know, can you feel energy, patience? Can you feel loving kindness or equanimity? Can you tell when it's present, when it's not? Can you consider structures to help you uh, begin to understand what these paramis are. Not because we tell you what they are, but because you know for yourself what renunciation is for you. And that renunciation, that learning to feel into renunciation as part of your just ordinary practice, that becomes the very thing that helps you when you're sitting in meditation steady in your mind in the moment so this um, these paramis are what Joseph calls purifying forces purifying forces in the mind this is what I did for 10 years and I didn't even realize it but for 10 years, I practiced, figured out, wallowed around how do I do what these 60 or 59 slogans were saying. The slogan would say something like the first one I ever opened up to was abandon all hope of fruition. And you guys know I was a Christian that doesn't make any sense to me. But this wanting to understand what is abandoning hope of fruition, what does that have to do with loving kindness? And gradually I begin to feel into that if I had some hope that it would turn out a certain way, you can see I'm gonna be doing some pushing to try to make it be like that But instead, if I abandon the hope that it will be a certain way and just move with it as it is, then um, it's a a completely different world. And so as I was feeling into practicing into these slogans, that's what we're going to do with the Paramis over the course of the year. Practice into them, feel into them. So, one more piece about them, uh, the paramis here. So, I think of the paramis, you can divide it up into three kinds of practices. One kind of practice is studying. Study and study it. There's a Pali word called uh, periyati. Periyati. There are monks that are called periyati monks. And a periyati monk is a monk that basically, or a nun, that just studies. That's what they do. They don't really meditate. They study, 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 study. They know the suttas. They know the Pali canon. They know the Dhamma in and out. They're probably the ones that did the um, Abhidhamma. Have you ever seen the Abhidhamma? It's like I mean, I think they use the the .8 font, and it's like little pitty tiny words, but just massive. It's just um practitioners, and they 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 study, 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 study. And in their studying, that wisdom is what supports them. Then there are monks that are called um, pati pati, pati pati practitioners. They are meditators. They practice all the time. They do very little study and they mostly just do um, practice and they meditate, 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 meditate. Pati pati uh, practitioners. And then there are there is this word in Pali called Paliwedi, Paliwedi, Patiwedi, that's that's this word realization. And this Patiyati and Pati Pati and this Patiwedi, these three words, they are used again and again and again and again in the Dhamma. And the way they're used is that all practitioners should study a subject, and then practice with it, and then get a realization that you begin to understand. So with each one of these paramis, you want to study it, so you come to Dhamma Talks, you listen, you read up if you want to. Uh, There's a book that we're recommending that you get uh, by Azran Sutito, which is the best book on the paramis ever. And you can get that book and read each chapter as we go along, just read, it's 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 not a heavy read, it's very well written, very, very, very well written, uh, well written. So you read the book, you study and you think about this, contemplate this word generosity, this word renunciation, this word truthfulness, why would that be in there? Patience, why is that in there? And then you begin to practice with it and practicing with it is this learning to feel whether we are pushing or staying in place. Learning to feel into the experience of what it is you're studying. This having the felt sense around it. I like to think of studying, having this felt sense, um, three ways. One is, you can watch how the more you study one, one paramis, the more the next paramese makes sense. It's as if the generosity is what flows into um, ethical conduct and flows into renunciation. That they flow into each other. They don't, Just They're not just random popcorn out here. They actually strengthen and support the understanding of the other. So once you begin to get an understanding of one, it will be the ground for you to have the understanding of the next one. And so from that standpoint, there is a flowing progression that's going to happen throughout the year, and we flow into them. Another way to think about this is every paramese has both a wisdom aspect to it, and it has a heart aspect to it. It's like the two wings of the Dhamma. It has uh, wisdom and compassion. And we can feel into the compassionate side of any one of these paramis, and we can feel into the wisdom of what it is that, um, the practice this parami is actually uh, what we can learn from it how can it, when you think of wisdom you're wanting to see can you learn how to understand what is suffering and what is not suffering and how to choose non-suffering over suffering that's really what we want to know i want to know when i'm suffering and i want to choose to not do that anymore and that quality can come from looking at these paramis, learning into them what they are, what's the wisdom in it, what's the heart quality in it. And then lastly, these paramis, as as we go through the year, you're going to begin to see that they're all present all the time. And you can feel, sometimes I can feel uh, my urgency, I can feel the diminishment of patience when I'm wanting something to go a certain way. When I feel that pushing energy, I can feel the resolve, that there's a sense of resolve. I need this. I want this. And there's less patience. So somehow or another, if I can kind of keep the resolve, but back off a little bit and add a little bit more patience here, uh, I can begin to balance between the two it's just uh, having a bit of restraint about it the outcome being the way i want it to be things like this you can begin to see what is actually um why you're actually pushing or why you're not doing anything you can see uh through the pyramids what's actually happening so that this um this practice over the course of the time, you can practice it however you want, but here in the hall, there's a little, that's what that board is over there to kind of help put some framing around it. And on the website, you can also see the same, it's the same basic information. It's a little bit more on the board here, but it's, it's basically helping you see how it is that you can practice with these paramis throughout the month Without them becoming stale or boring, if you just come every week and listen to a Dhamma talk, it's going to be hard to do that, those last two. Because, I mean, you can hear a Dhamma talk on generosity from Tim or Carrie. You can hear another one from me, and that's good. But now we start getting into the third talk on generosity and the fourth talk on generosity. It's going to get a little rough. Like, uh, how many talks are going to hear on generosity? And then if you go to Sunday, they're talking about generosity. You go to Thursday night, they're talking about generosity. Wherever you go, you're like, I'm sick of generosity. So a better way to understand what's going to happen here is we're all talking about generosity. That's the study part. But where the Dhamma comes alive is when you start feeling into generosity in some random moment throughout the day. Just some random moment. Where? What would generosity look like here? What is it? Is generosity even present? What if it's not? That's okay. It's not. That's just as good information as if it were. Because when it's not, it means you know what generosity is and you know it's not present. So you can begin to sense into what's gonna make the paramis come alive isn't the inspiration you're gonna get or maybe the inspiration you get from a talk, but it's not the talk. That's just fingers pointing at the moon. What's gonna make these paramis come alive is when you're in your ordinary life trying to figure out, is it here, is it not? Can I find it? Is it here? I don't know. What if it's not? What does that mean? Doesn't mean anything, but what does that mean? I don't know. And you can begin to sense into what's happening here. And then you can see the kaleidoscope nature of these paramis. You can see the Dhamma wings of it. You can see this kind of flowing nature. You'll know it for yourself. Not because someone says this is what it is, but because you'll know it for yourself. So this is what um, this is what I really want to share about the practice, and to encourage you to to practice with it and have a take a take this up. Um, the Buddha. I want to leave you with this one last thing that the Buddha said. The Buddha said that the result of suffering is two things. So we as human beings, we suffer all the time. Suffering meaning we just have difficulty, mess, stress, stuff we have to deal with. And he said the result of suffering is one of two things. It leads to bewilderment or a noble search. That's it bewilderment or a noble search and what he meant is that when you come into difficulty or when you begin to look at life and just life in general with all of its conditionality and mess and difficulties and joys and happiness and the lack of control over the whole thing what you begin to realize is that you can go back to sleep and just stay in the bewilderment of the whole thing. Or you could take up a noble search and actually begin to feel your way into what is true, what is real, what is liberating, what is freeing. And that noble search, once you get on that path and you start searching, it has a life of its own. It, uh, here I am, I've been practicing for over 30 years and I am in love with the Dhamma as much today as I was even uh, at the very beginning when I didn't have a clue how you could live in the world without having hope of fruition. I had no clue how you could live that way and how you'd ever be happy if you didn't have any hope. I don't have hope of things turning out a certain way. I trust that whatever happens, I'm gonna be joyous anyway, regardless. I'm gonna always find joy. I'm always gonna find a level of peace somewhere. I don't care if the mind is very, very scattered. I don't care if I have anxiety. I know it will pass just like everything else does. I just have this knowing quality that I can move through the world without having to push my way through and without having to just kind of pretend like I don't see it. So let's take a moment to sit quietly and we'll see if there's any comments from anyone. Okay, thank you for your kind attention here. Let's see if we have any um, comments or if anybody has any questions. We can delve a little deeper here. Do you mind coming in and get the mic so they can hear it online? Yes, okay.
1: Do too much. <laughs> um, so you, you talked about striving forward and then sit, uh, staying in place. So what, what does that look like, staying in place? Like you said, you didn't really stay in place either. Mm-hmm. What,
0: what do you think that means? I think that staying in place is when things are difficult and we just ignore it. We don't want to deal with it. We don't know what to do. So we don't do anything. We just kind of, um, you know, I just watch TV, don't do anything. Or I, um, um, we kind of, um, we know another staying in place would be, we know something's not right. Something in the way I'm acting isn't quite right, but we, you know, it's just the way I am. So, you know, deal with it. That's why I was with the boys, you know, like I'm the dictator. It's not a democracy. I'm the dictator and everybody just has to do what I want. And even if I knew I was shoving and pushing them or I knew something wasn't this was not okay, it's not the kindest way to be. I just didn't care, or it's not, yeah, I didn't care, but I mean, I didn't have a reason to care because I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. It's just, this is the way it is. And so that's this kind of staying in place, not questioning what's really going on when we can feel that something's not quite right. Thank you. Oh, come
2: on. Yeah. Come on up. Um, This isn't really so much of a question, but just when we were talking about the not pushing forward and not staying in place, what it kind of reminded me of, and I kind of wanted to see if this seemed kind of like the the same idea, is so right now I'm kind of going through a transition in life of just like I'm not... You know, uh, I don't have the same goals. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm exactly the same person that I've always been. I'm just kind of now entering a different phase of my life. And for a while, I was like fighting it. And I wasn't, um, I wasn't, uh, allowing that to be true. Yeah. Um, and now I've kind of reached a point where it's not, I'm not fighting it. I'm accepting the fact that there is this change. I'm, welcoming it, but I'm not actively I'm for a while I was like trying to figure out It's like, well is it going to look like this? Is it going to look like this? And I'm not doing that anymore either. So instead it's just I'm kind of keeping those open questions as I'm going through and seeing what kind of resonates and it's like oh that actually might be a direction that I'm going but I'm not actively like seeking it In a more aggressive way, but i 'm also not just staying for it i 'm just kind of letting it come to me as it as it goes and and forming those ideas and and possibilities yes um, so that 's kind of how i interpret
0: that 's what i would too I, I feel the same way, and you 'd be able to feel inside you know it 's like when you 're in between jobs and um at first you know you don't want to just rush into a new job you know first you're you're you're, you're fighting the having to leave the, your job and then you finally leave your job and then now you don't want to rush into a new job you want to be you know get the job that you really want or what what's best for you right now and then there's a moment when you're not even looking for a job, you know. You, you, you. The, un, the unemployment's steady. It's okay. We got the money. And there's a moment when we're just kind of like, we, we, we're not even considering working. And that is, that felt sense is when we, we have to feel into when we are uh, hiding and 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 when we are fighting so that's what it sounds like this kind of open question it's okay you're still inquiring considering all of that is is this active listening this active feeling into what's happening and when you just start finding that every day you do nothing do nothing do nothing do nothing you don't have any more interest no active no nothing then you might be leaning over into the staying in place do you see
2: yeah no this this makes much more sense to me yeah yeah thank you
0: yeah you're welcome so that's what you're going to do with the you you can go into the this is what we're going to do with the parames just the way you're describing it both of these this is what we're doing you're 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 feeling into not just my career or my relationship or or something in life You're feeling into a concept. You're feeling into an idea. Generosity is an idea. And it's supported by actions. So you're feeling into the idea of generosity or the idea of patience and seeing how that quality shows up in any given moment. And as time goes on, it has a purifying effect on our um, on our our minds and we become less and less and less pushy, uh, less and less and less uh, kind of uh, uh, lackadaisical and we become more and more and more uh, involved, interested, inspired and connected. Uh, yeah, Alan? So do I do this or you do it. Oh, go ahead and speak, Alan. Oh, do I have to do it? Oh, I can do it. Oh. Do you know? I mean, I guess I can come over here and do it.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Oh. I think it's over here in De Boer. Oh, maybe it's in the participants, that's where it's... More, this more. There we go. Alan, are you unmuted?
1: Yeah, can you hear me?
0: Okay, there it is. I think we've unmuted everybody. Oh, here it is. All right, there, now you can unmute yourself. Go ahead, Alan.
1: Perfect. Great. Yeah, um, just a a comment. Thanks for this talk. Prior to your talk, I was a bit resistive or felt resistance when it was the pyramid here. And it's like, Oh, the pyramid. I pyramid is very, um, just kind of, you know, being with what is, and it's like, uh, if it's something's not there, it just feels conceptual. And it feels like, you know, if I'm just like, Putting thoughts to say, okay, this moment isn't like this. So this moment is bad because generosity isn't here. That, that was the resistive feeling of it. And I, um, I really appreciated how you brought in the, you know, not pushing forward, but not staying still because it just pulled it into the, how those paramis are, you know, can, can be, um, can be with what is here because if they're not here, it's like not a, Oh, I have to make them here. Pretend that they're here. Or even like use some, you know, cognitive ability to try to make them here, but it's just, Oh, I know they're not here. I know generosity is not present. Oh, okay. You know, um, so yeah i'm 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 much more interested in the topic this year that that resistance seemed to have you know diminished uh, with this talk
0: yeah, what you're pointing to is um so this is the problem with the paramese period it's 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 the problem I had with them It's this idea that this is the second class kind of. This is a heart practice. It's all mushy. It's like doesn't. It's it's not really the real stuff. That's concentration. That's the big stuff. That's what we should be working on. Not this heart opening, kumbaya, love everybody. But in truth, what you're pointing to is that the paramis are the difficult practice because mostly we are not in those states of grace. We are not in the perfected states of these paramis. We are usually in the discomfort of the absence or diminished uh, capacity of those paramis. So what we're trying to do is not, like you say, we're not trying to make generosity come. You don't need generosity to come whether it's present or not, is the same in Dhamma. It's the same understanding, if generosity is not present, that you have if generosity is present. It's, it's in the knowing of generosity, what generosity is. And if it's not present, and you know it's not present, then you're beginning to know what it is. And that knowing what it is, is what you're trying to do. You're trying to have the realization of what is generosity. And the more you know what it is, the more you will be able to just uh, find it and connect to it when you need to. So this, uh, it makes sense, this kind of, uh, there might be others that feel that kind of dread around the heart qualities and we hate talking about them um, I hate talking about them too, so I feel the same, but I, I, I just love talking about the act of finding them, the act of feeling into it. That's what makes Dharma come alive. In fact, I, I think we have a misunderstanding of Buddha's practice. I really think this, this kind of Western way that we look at practice we have a misunderstanding Buddha was not trying to get calm he could get calm he already knew how to if he was just trying to get to you know states of bliss then he would have stayed where he was he would actively inquire when he was sitting there in meditation he would do what we call thinking and he would sit there and feel into a lot of this information and when He did not have a Buddhist practice to practice with. He was just there on his own, making it up as he was going, applying whatever wisdom, whatever he had studied from all these other teachers. He was by himself. So just let me try that. Let me see what happens. Let me try this. Let's see what happens. What if I do this? What happens? And all of that trying and figuring it out we, on the back end of that, have all this wisdom that he gleaned from it, and we talk about it. But when he was practicing, he was not just sitting there in uh, emptiness and bliss. He, was, he may have been in emptiness, but he was inquiring, using his thinking mind to understand the nature of all kinds of phenomena. So what we're doing as practitioners, there is some peace to sitting still and being quiet. But I used to tell myself, if I'm going to sit here and think for 45 minutes, I might as well think about something dhamma. So I would always find some dhamma to to contemplate. And if I were going to think, I'm going to sit and think about what does generosity actually mean to me? What what problems do I have with it? How does it feel when I'm generous? Well, how does it feel if I'm not generous? And just say the word generosity. What is that? Learn the Pali word dana. What does dana and generosity, how do those two words come together? And I would sit there and practice in this way when the mind was all scattered and beat about rather than fighting with the mind to make it stop being scattered i would just give it something to think about and this kind of feeling your way into understanding dhamma is actually the truth of the practice more so than can you be still the stillness comes automatically but the willingness to to stay present to even inquiring about a concept is um, it is free it's just as freeing as finding yourself with the breath so if you find yourself feeling this kind of resistance around it I think you let that resistance just be there and see if there's something that can generate some interest with you you could Let's say you showed up and the talk has started and you're like, oh, not generosity a third time. I can't do it anymore. (laughs) Then just sit there and close your eyes and watch what happens to the body as you hear this talk. Watch the ebbing and flowing of what happens to the body because that ebbing and flowing about what's being said, that is as important as whether or not you're generous. In fact, that's probably more important, your realization as to how words impact you is far more important. Do you see? Okay, good. (laughs) Thank you, Tawara. You're welcome. Well, we better stop. I think we have uh, some announcements and I wanna make sure we get out on time